I titled the message, The New Birth and Love for the King. The New Birth and Love for the King. And let's pray again, just real quick, and then, and then I'm going to get started on some, some statistics. We're going to give you the bad news at the beginning. And then it, this, this message actually ramps up, and it gets more fun as you go along. So hold tight, okay? Hold tight. All right. Lord God, we just thank you that um, Jesus is alive. He's amazing. Thank you for love. And I pray, God, now that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts. For those who know you, Lord, let it be a confirmation. Let them sing with me the truths of what Christ has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And for those who are still apart from you, I pray today that they would just hear your call and that they would give themselves over to you and that they would find out what what real love is really defined like and that they would experience it in truth because of your presence here among us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. All right, so I'm going to start off with some statistics, okay? Some discouraging statistics. And I'm not saying that these statistics are necessarily true. Um, in fact, I kind of I have some opinions on them, like they all do. Statistics are statistics, and they depend on a lot of different categories, how you define, how you're getting your information, you know, how many people were actually polled, and stuff like that. How do they define this? But for the sake of what I want to talk about, the statistics are going to serve their purpose, even if I don't necessarily fully agree with them. However, when you do look at them, you will say, like, yeah, maybe there is something to these, even if you don't fully agree with the way that the data actually came about. Some of this information, the statistics actually come from uh, the Barna Group. You can actually go to www.barna.org and you can look up uh, one of the studies there. A couple of other ones are actually done um, from some other groups that are published in some books that that you can actually get, one of which is uh, wrote about uh, evangelical youth and sex and, and connections. They did some interviews, so you're going to see some statistics about that, all right? All right, so the first one that I have um, is that the first statistic, and this is from the Barna Group, this is the quote. These are all quotes, by the way. I didn't make these up, and I didn't change them in any way. Born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce as, not, as are non-Christians. So here's the first statistic. Born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce statistically as non-Christians. Okay? And number two, the second one. Only 9% of evangelicals tithe. Only 9% of evangelicals tithe. Tithe actually is from the word 10. It means giving 10% of you know, first fruits. Actually, it's got the idea that God owns everything He's the owner of it all. He owns our life. He owns all of our... It's not our money. It's his money. And God says, I want you to bring a portion of what I give to you. In fact, your first fruits, bring it into the house of the Lord, you know, for me, to demonstrate your love for me. And so um, this statistic says that actually 9% of people, 9% of evangelicals actually tithe. Now, I would say that the Bible goes way beyond in the New Testament tithing into, into what is called the grace of giving. In other words... Like, like that song we just sang, your vision of Christ actually blurs your checkbook and the desire for things that your checkbook can gain you on this earth. And you begin to operate by faith and grace rather than by statistical numbers. That's the grace of giving. It's, it's love-oriented, right? And, uh, which is, goes, a lot of times, way beyond the tithe. When you, read, when you read the New Testament, you'll find out that there's some churches that were, they were just like poor. Like Paul, as a pastor... The, the Apostle Paul was like, look it, don't give any more. I know how bad you're doing. And they're like, no, I want to give. I want to give. They have like nothing. They're like the widow's might, you know. And, and, and so only 9% of evangelicals tithe. All right, the next statistic. Of 12,000 teenagers who took a pledge to wait for marriage, 80% of them had sex outside of marriage within the next seven years. So I have this idea that, you know, you have like Christian parents and um, they're trying to raise their kids up with... Uh, with a degree of vision of marriage from this book. And uh, they go out when they're like 13 years old or whatever, somewhere around that age or depending on the child. And they go and uh, they buy a ring and then they take them out for dinner and they have like a little discussion about um, purity and marriage and the beauty of it all. And they give them a ring and, and they're like, dude, I'll put the ring on. So they put this ring on, a purity ring or whatever. I, always, I said this before last week, but Josh, Josh Harris, who wrote the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye, he actually said, hey, if, if that ring is really going to help you with your purity, why don't you hold out for the purity car? And I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry, the ring's not going to do it, but if you're really serious about my purity, Mom and Dad, you'll buy me a car. And I'm telling you, if you get me the car, 
then I'm, I'm all for, you know, maintaining purity. You know, anyways, just, just another word. So of 12,000 teenagers, 80% after that, set, within seven years of putting that ring on, got involved in a sexual relationship um, outside of marriage. 80%. Uh, the next one, 26% of traditional evangelicals do not think that premarital sex is wrong. I don't know where we stand, but I think the Bible's pretty clear on that. And then the last statistic, this one's really sad. White evangelicals are more likely than Catholics and mainline Protestants to object to having black neighbors. White evangelicals are more likely than Catholics and mainline Protestants to object to having black neighbors. Isn't that sad? I, I really, I'll be honest with you, like prejudice, like don't get me wrong, our souls can be trained. And our hearts prior to Christ are a depth of difficulty. And, and depending on your background, you could be trained to hate people, but the love of Christ and prejudice cannot coexist together. They are antithesis of one another. And so in the very least, even if it does exist, it should be crucified. It should be crucified, Right? So just an idea about this. Well, so what are these, what are these you know, and, and like I said, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not certain that I agree with everything on there or how they got their data, but when you look at this, I mean, I, I'll be the first to testify. I've been working here in the church doing youth ministry for 15, 13, 14 years, and, and I, I could tell you right off the bat, um, you know, some of the statistics about the kids and sexuality are right on the money. What's up? What's going on? I mean, even if the data isn't totally true, it doesn't have to... You don't have to go very far to look and say, are Christians getting divorces? Is it happening? What's going on with that? What's going on with our understanding of marriage? What's going on with giving? Why are evangelical churches with a number of people uh, in regular attendance, why are they always striving and why are the pastoral staffs continually having to come to the church as if they're pleading for money, like we're behind again, Please help. Please help. When it just ought not to be that way. Why is that? And uh, in other words, I mean, some of these statistics sort of point at the, at the evangelical church in America as if it looks pretty much like the world. In fact, in some ways, I would even say maybe worse than the world. Because there's this veneer, there's this gloss, there's this covering of religiosity that is nothing more than legalistic laws on the outside that actually make us more miserable. That make us more miserable because some of those decisions are not oriented in love towards God, right? I mean, it's just an add-on to the same way of life that the world lives. We look exactly the same, but then we put the label of Christian on our foreheads and we walk around and, and frequently, actually, we're, we're actually profaning the name of Jesus when we do that. And You know what Jesus said, if you're going to be like that, if you're going to be like hypocrisy, hypocritical or lukewarm, he even says, I would rather that you just go. Just go and live for the world. I would rather that you would be cold for me than lukewarm. That's what he says. Just go. Just go and live for the world if you're not true on. If you're not, but if you're fired up, then let's get fired up. Let's, let's game on. Let's get involved. Let's, let's move towards passionate loving and take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, that being said, one of the reasons why I have a difficulty with some of the statistics, especially that first one, is um, how they define born again and what the Bible actually says about being born again and people who are regenerated, who have a new life in Christ. This is what we've been talking about in Romans. What, what we could not do, God did. That's what Paul preached on last week. What, what the law could not do, what he... The law couldn't do it in us. God did by sending Christ. And he invaded the earth. God invaded the earth in a physical form through the Son of God, through Jesus. And Jesus makes atonement for our sin. He pays the penalty. He pays it off. He satisfies God's righteous requirements through his death on the cross so that we can be totally forgiven and that God can't be held can't, the, Satan can't come to God and be like, you're so unjust in forgiving that one because Jesus totally satisfied God's just requirements. After dying on the cross, he's buried for three days, 
He rises again in victory over sin and death and Satan. He ascends into heaven. He has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. He was given the names above all names. And then he asks God for the promise. You know, you know what I mean with the promises? Like the promise is awesome for us if you don't know what it is. And that is the Holy Spirit is to come. And he goes and he asks the Father and the Father says yes because he's not going to withhold anything from his Son because he loves his Son. And he sends the Holy Spirit into the world and he begins to invade people's lives. No more is it about a temple in Jerusalem, a physical temple. It's not needed any longer. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is to exist in the living temples of human beings and it's no longer in Jerusalem. It's all over the world. Right now, all over the world, people just like us are gathering to give praise and glory to God, to testify, to pray together, to commune together, to fellowship together in all kinds of languages, singing all kinds of different songs with all kinds of instruments or maybe no instruments at all. And they're meeting together, giving praise and glory to God. New life is created by God through Jesus Christ. I have, a, I have um, this is how Jesus actually put it. You know, when Nicodemus came to see him, and he comes at night, I kind of like Nicodemus. He's, he's kind of cool. And later on, you find out later, he got pretty bold, because during, during the judicial um, moments when Jesus was actually before um, the leaders and he was being judged unfairly, Nicodemus actually speaks up for him. And later on, he even helps to go uh, get Jesus' body with Joseph of Arimathea. And so you get the idea, at least, even though it's not stated, that he probably ended up Becoming a believer, you know, and what I mean by that is that he came to the realization that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is to be sent into the world. And he comes to him, and you remember what Jesus said to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see it. And so there's all these verses in the New Testament that speak about this work of God, this work of grace that God does to actually bring new birth. Just a sideline, you need to look at how Barna's group actually defines what it means to be born again. And what I'm telling you, to the degree that that de definition does not line up with this book, is to the degree that their statistics are wrong. And they do not define it correctly, just so that you know. All right, I have a, a short... Um, just overview of some proof texts. And what I want you to look here, I'm just going to crank right through these, just First John only about the new birth, about what happens during the new birth. And what I want you to look for here is, does my choices that I make at attempting to love God create fruit, or does the new birth actually create it? Take a look at the verses, all right? Or does the new birth create it? All right, First John 2.29. We're going to move through these real quick. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. Okay? Now we need to get a definition of what that actually means. What does practicing righteousness actually mean? But I want you to see it here, just terms on being born again. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Do you get the idea there that, whoa, something is happening on the inside that's causing an outside change? Something on the inside is happening, invisible, that causes an outside change. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You get the idea here that, again, being born again actually is hinging on or, or actually creates the knowledge of God. And not only that, but it changes our behaviors from the inside out. 1 John 5, 1-4. Actually, this, there's two verses here that speak of it, but I just kind of grouped them all together because it's a cool passage. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's how we get born again. How? through faith in Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith in Christ, it creates, it creates the new birth. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Hello? There can be no judgmentalism right there. Do you see that? How could we have prejudice in there? I'm just, just asking. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. That's critical. They're not burdensome. You have to ask yourself, why are, why are the commandments of God not burdensome? Why? We'll answer that. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So do you see there that, that uh, belief in Christ causes us to be born again? It also generates a love towards God and towards other people. And it also helps us to overcome the world. And statistically, I'm telling you, that means that we should be way beyond, if we're truly born again, the statistics of the world. We ought not to be looking like the world at all. God's name is at stake here. Is this word true or is it not? I'm just asking. I think it's true. I really do. And so that's the little overview on on 1 John, just about the new birth and what it generates. It generates something. For the last few months we've been singing in our youth group, we sing this song called From the Inside Out. From the Inside Out. I want to love you, God, from the inside out. And, And what that song is, it's just a prayer asking God, Lord, I'm weak, but you are strong, and I want you to pour your love into me so that I can reciprocate it right back out and reflect it right back towards you from the inside out. It's not a choice on the outside. It's something from the inside out that actually happens. This is what, this is what the um, pastor Paul's been spe- preaching on going through Romans, especially in Romans chapter 8 and last week's message. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now that has to do with like judicial, right? What has God done for us that he's declared us not guilty from a a judicial standpoint? But praise the Lord, it's not just about getting our foot into heaven when we die. He actually, he goes farther than that and he changes us from the inside out so that not only are we judicially cleared free from God and set free from the slavery of sin and of death and of Satan, but he begins to actually fill us in such a way that we begin to look like Jesus more and more from the inside out. For what God, for what, for God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh according that the, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so there's some things there going on about judicially that we have been justified before God, and there's some other things that are talking about that, that there's a change that actually takes place. And what I'm going to call this, I'm going to call it the treasure exchange. There's a, there's a treasure exchange that takes place. And until that treasure exchange takes place, I don't care if you call yourself a Christian or not, if you haven't done that, if that exchange of treasure has not taken place, you're going to fall into the, into the statistics looking just like the world. You're going to be there. And, and biblically, I can prove it from the Bible. Okay? So there's this exchange of treasuring that takes place. What are you treasuring right now? What is it that is of the greatest value to you? What is it that you spend your time thinking about? What was, it, what was the last thing you were thinking about last night when you laid down to go to sleep, if you went to sleep? What, was the, what, what were you singing about this last week? Were you singing songs this week? What was it that you were singing about? Were you singing love songs for your wife? Did you get, did you get some like, love songs together, you know, and you know, break, out, break out in some like, American Idol early, you know, say, it doesn't matter how I sing, I'm just going to sing to you anyways because I love you. Were you singing to God? I mean, what was it? Because what you sing about, what you think about, what you dwell on, what you spend your money on, that's what you're treasuring. That's what, that's what you're valuing, right? And the world's got a lot of stuff to treasure. Hey, I got some examples, actually. I used this one before, but um, I, uh, I'm going to bring, I should probably, I was going to do this. This is a better way to do it. So I have, some, I have some treasures in my uh, Victoria's Secret bag that, that we got um, for free, I think, actually, from visitation or whatever. So these treasures, actually, I've, I've just found. These, these tre- I did not go in there, by the way. <laughs> just so that you know. 
I do remember, though, I remember listening to a sermon, and, and the question was, what is Victoria's secret anyways? What is it? What is that she's hiding, right? All right, so <clears throat> I didn't hear that, but I'm sure it was funny. Okay, so I have these, I have these treasures. Um, most of my treasures actually come from Walmart, so, and they usually Reg picks them up. So I have a couple, so I thought maybe I'd share them with you. This one I, I shared before some years ago, but I, it's just so good I can't pass it up. This is Bod Cologne. And I use this quite frequently with our, with our uh, youth ministry. I have to read the back. It says this. Hey, this is not for our dads. Wearing bod man will give you control over your future. You will date famous actresses and supermodels. <laughs> Celebrities will befriend you. You will be asked to act in independent films. Women will parachute in for you if you wear bod man. This is, this, is the, this, is the, this is the good part right here. Spray Bodman on your chest and your arms and your back, and you will, and this is in all capitals, rule. You will rule. <laughs> Something's not equal, you know what I mean? Something's not right. All right, so I had some issues with gel that were going on, you know, like hair gel. Josh Kinder actually got me started on hair gel. Just, uh, I'm just going to put that on the recording so that he can hear that. <laughs> At camp, he was making fun of me. He said my hair looked like a Q-tip or whatever. So that had been fuzzy. You know, that was like fuzzy. So, um, so I started using hair gel after camp one summer after he harassed me for, during summer camp. And I, I was having some issues. I told Raj, I'm like, I don't, know, I don't know if I really like the gel I'm using. Can you get me some new stuff? So she went to the Walmart, which is where our treasures come from. And... And she picked up this new, uh, this, this styling gel, got to be. This one's called Magnetic. She didn't know because she didn't read it, but I, I read all the stuff. I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that, like, when I eat cereal, like, I've got to read every word on the box. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> if I'm going to sing a song, I need to look at every lyric. And if I can't understand it, I'm not singing it. You know, I need, I need to know what's being said. I'm the kind of person that if you go to the movies with, you have a problem because I'm going to be talking about the philosophies behind the movie rather than enjoying the film itself. Oh, that's just messed up right there. Do you see what they're trying to teach there? That's just messed up. So this, this stuff, Reg brings it home to me, and I, had to, I stopped using it. I only used it once, and I'll tell you why, but um, this is what it says in the back. Got to be magnetic styling gel. It contains pheromones. A man's secret edge to make the ladies take notice. So get your game on because this, and I can't repeat the word, it's got some interesting ASCII characters. Delivers firm hold and natural shine and gets the ladies revved up. <laughs> so I actually wore this stuff to work one day and it's, it's got so much like stink in it that people were making comments at work. I work with all these ladies and they were making comments about it. So I'm like, it, it was not like attracting like <laughs> anything. But I had to keep it because it's a treasure. And it shows, like, our products show what we treasure, doesn't it? This is one of my favorites. This is my latest, my latest treasure. This is from Sam's Club. Again, though, you know, another Walmart company where I get my treasures. And uh, this is a, a new type of juice that's out on the market. Maybe you guys have been drinking it or whatever. It's called Naked. Naked juice. And uh, it, it, it's 100% juice, you know. Like in this one, there's... Ten strawberries, three guavas, three and a quarter apples, two oranges, one peach, one mango, and they just smush it all together. It's got a real short life. You know, it's like, they're like the juicer guy at night. You know, they juice it all up and then they put it in there, shove some more vitamins and minerals in there, and they're like, naked juice. It's all natural. You know, actually, this is it's actually pretty good stuff. Uh, the kids like it though, because uh, you know the schools they don't they're not really they don't most of the schools won't let you buy pop now during the day, and so you know they might have this stuff in the school. I don't know, maybe do they? Maybe. Or they'll bring it to school and they'll be like, well, where did you get naked? Well, I got naked in the school cafeteria. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I got naked at Sam's Club. <laughs> All that's funny, but the reality of it is, is that it's sad and funny at the same time. We can make fun of that. That's funny. And um, part of the issue there is that, you know, the farther we get from God, the more immorality actually creeps out of our hearts. You know that? That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. That as we continue to resist the knowledge of God and suppress him and put him down, immorality just, and it's all in us, right? Can we agree on that? Jesus said that out of our hearts, yours and mine, come immoralities. 
and, and as we suppress the knowledge of God, it happens. So when you look at a people group, a whole people group, like a nation, the level of immorality in our acceptance of it and what we allow publicly as a nation is a measurement of our love for God or lack thereof. It could be our suppression of him. Okay? So just think about it that way. And, and this stuff is at the Walmart, and it's in my house. What's up with that? Anyway, The reality of it is I use those things because the fir- I had to buy bot again because last time I used it, uh, the whole basement of the church smelled like it because all the guys were taking it and spraying it on one another. Oh, we actually did have one person at camp one time uh, that, that put it on them, and, and he actually came back to my cabin. He was like, this stuff really works, man. It was a junior high cabin. He's like, yeah, afterwards I sprayed it on me, and all the high school girls were like over-talking to me and everything. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> this is not right. All right, so there's a treasure exchange. What is it that you're treasuring? You know, you can see what the world's treasuring. Should we be treasuring this stuff? Do we treasure the same way that the world treasures? Do, are our treasures exactly the same? Do they look the same? You know, I mean, sometimes we can line up, you know, like in like benevolent needs and stuff like that, but a lot of times our treasuring is different and our most valuable treasure is incredibly different than what the world treasures, right? So what is it that you're treasuring? The new birth creates and cultivates, fans the flame. Amazing changes in our souls. These changes actually at the, are rooted in the things that we treasure. God actually begins to give us new passions. He gives us new desires. He even gives us new hatreds. Where there was once deadness, God breaks up the fallow ground and we, we begin to actually love something different. I actually remember this. Paul and I were driving some 12 years ago in his car and I, was, I, was, I had been thinking about this verse in Romans chapter 12 that says, abhor what is evil. And, and if you think about that, like, as a Christian, it's like, okay, do you have a list in your mind of stuff that you need to abhor? I need to abhor that stuff. I need to abhor that television program. I need to abhor this over here, and I need to abhor this over here. And you have this list of things that you need to abhor. And what I'm saying is that what I experienced was God actually forced me to start hating stuff that once I didn't like, I used to like. This came really apparent to me when Reg and I, uh, we used to rent movies and, uh, uh, years ago, and right after I was born again um, and received like the power of God's Spirit in, in a... In a amazing way that's available for all people. We were renting this movie and she fell asleep and I was watching this movie and um, it wouldn't have bothered me probably a month before but this, this movie, the scene actually changes and, and there's this police officer and he's being tortured by these bad guys, right? And It probably wouldn't have bothered me. But then all of a sudden I realized I had tears rolling down my face. I had tears rolling down my face and I didn't even recognize it until I felt them going down my face as I'm watching the show on TV. And I'm like, this is incredible. And I wasn't talking about that it was incredible that I hated it. What was incredible was that I saw the movie with a whole new light. I was like, wow, I can't believe I paid money for this. This is actually sick. This is sick. This is disgusting. And it should not be called entertainment. Now listen, I didn't, you know, there have been times when I have gone back to the video store and I'd be like, you need to pull that off your shelf. I have done that before. In this case, I really didn't, but significantly what happened from the inside out, I began to, hate, began to hate what God hated. And at the same time, I began to love what God loved too. It's available to every one of his children through the new birth. Treasuring verses. Let's look at a couple of them real quick before we move on to the psalm. Matthew 6.19, you know this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I like this one from Matthew 12. Jesus says, A good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good fruit. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. So do you see here that there's treasure that's good, and there's treasure that's evil, and sometimes we don't know the difference. And we need God to actually teach us the difference between good and evil. Between what is good and what is evil, what is beautiful and what is ugly, and God needs to transform our ability to do that, and it happens from the inside out through the new birth. And then in Matthew 13:44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he goes and he buys that field. That's like the kingdom of heaven. There's a transition of treasuring that takes place 
when we meet Christ, and it happens internally. Now, here's something to, a question that I have for you. It says, uh, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and, and stuff can't go in and destroy it. When you look at that verse, are you thinking of like gold, jewels, and precious stones? Are you thinking of stuff that you're kind of heaping up, you know, that you'll be able to enjoy forever? Or is your treasure Jesus? Because I'm telling you that that treasure that Jesus is talking about isn't something that he's going to give you. It is him. It is him. He is the treasure that we are to store up in heaven. He is the treasure that cannot be destroyed and who will rule and reign forever. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't want you treasuring heaven. He wants you to treasure him. He is the thing that was hidden in the field that everyone goes and sells everything that they have to gain. It's not, everla- not so that you can live forever. Everyone's going to live forever. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing Christ. He is the treasure. Has your treasure been changed from the things of the world to Christ? Is he above all else? Is he your final, beautiful, passionate, desirous, all-glorious, splendor-filled treasure? Do you see him like that? Is it experiential or is it just taught to you because you've been in church most of your life? Or do you really know it to be true? Jesus is the treasure that our hearts have been seeking all along. I like this verse, Colossians 2.3. It says that in Christ, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. That's awesome. If you want your kids to be wise and have knowledge, they need to meet Christ. And until they do, they will make foolish decisions. Because you know what? The reality of it is even after we meet Christ, we still make foolish decisions. But there's some changing that's going on from the inside out, okay? Some changing that's going on from the inside out. Keep in mind the statistics and how does this actually happen? How do we not be in the statistics? How do I have a marriage that lasts for 55 years? By the way, Dean and Sandra celebrated their 55-year anniversary. They were here in the 8 o'clock service and it, was, it just fit in so perfectly. It was like, oh, it's beautiful. Christ is the treasure. Um, Reg and I met when we were in uh, high school. I was a, a senior. She was a, a sophomore. And uh, that's, our, we're actually not that far apart in age, only a, a year, a little bit less than a year. That's because she was held back in school. She really didn't. She's not here, so I could talk about her. She, di- she didn't really do so good in school, and she actually was held back. So, and uh, it was in kindergarten. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was her parents' decision. You know, she just wasn't ready for the next grade, you know, at, at five or six or however old the kids are. But, and uh, so we met, we met in class. Yeah, you know. I'm gonna de- it's going to get worse. Just get ready. <laughs> so we, uh, we met in high school, and um, so we, we dated for, I don't know, eight years before we actually got married. Some four to five of those years actually were apart from uh, Jesus at the center of our relationship. And, um, you know, it was, it was a stormy time. It was a real stormy time in our relationship. It was hard. And, and then something actually happened. And... Uh, we actually were engaged to be married, and you know I had asked her to marry me. I took her to this very interesting place and uh, asked her to marry me, which was really fun. And, and then I fell in love with another person. And that person that I fell in love with was another man. And we had this weird triangular relationship going on between her and me and this other man. And she actually decided to break off the engagement because I was psychotic in love, infatuated, would probably be too weak of a word for this other person. And uh, so the engagement was broke off, yes, and that other man was Christ. And uh, he had to beat me about the head and shoulders because the reality of it is I'm a very, when I was praying, I'm a very addictive person. And... um, I apologize in advance. <laughs> but Reg just walked in, so I apologize in advance after you hear this. I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a very addicted pers- addictive personality, you know, like one of those people that uh, when I get involved in something, I always go 110% in one direction, even if I'm wrong. Uh, that's really hard in the business world because I could be desperately wrong, but man, I make a convincing case that I am right. And you better, have, you better come at me with like a lot of stats that I'm wrong. I will eat crow, but that's only because Jesus allows me to humble myself now. If it weren't for the cross, I'd be incredibly 
prideful and arrogant person. Not that I am not anyway. Yet, still, he's actually changing that. So we, uh, our engagement was actually broke off, and God had to kind of shift some gears. And I really was full tilt Christ, and I just sort of left her by the side. And that's not what Valentine's Day is all about, you know what I mean? And so Jesus actually changed some stuff. He did some work in her, and I actually got to ask her to marry me a second time, which was really fun. So some of you who are like that uh, maybe didn't. So that was really cool. Um, but Jesus changes us from the inside out. He makes us crazy in some ways for him, crazy for him. That's what the new birth actually generates. It had very difficult um, ramifications in my life at the time because you know my marriage was like on hold, and I didn't know what was going to happen. At that time, I was really heartbroken. I actually ended up memorizing uh, a verse, actually. It's Isaiah 26.3, which stuck with me from that time until now. And that verse actually says, um, The steadfast of mine thou wilt keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Because it was really hard when our engagement was broke off. But, you know, I was caught between these two loves. I'm like, I have this love for Christ and I have this love for her and and I'm not pleasing her. But I, I need to please this one. I need to do this. And I want them both to converge. Praise the Lord. They did. They actually did. And, and I'm telling you right now, like, our relationship and our marriage, and uh, we've had, you know, as any marriage goes up and down, but the reality of it is Christ has made our marriage beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And I would say that with Christ at the center in this, in this Trinitarian covenant that we have between God and, and Reg and myself, that the marriage actually gets better and better and better as it as it goes along. Um, There's seasons of difficulty, but the reality of it is he's right there leading us and guiding us through it. So we have this passionate love for the king, and therein lies, we're going to head to, to uh, Psalm 45. That's the, we just ended the introduction, by the way, of the message. <laughs> All right, Psalm 45. You guys need to turn there because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to aid you without your scriptures now. So open up your Bibles to, uh, to Psalm 45. And um, we're going to spend the rest of our time here. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now listen. Are you trying to do it? Or are you letting it flow through you? There's a world of difference there. One is religion, and one is the conversion through the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Love is a natural overflow of the work of the Spirit of God in us. Um, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. God is so passionate about us loving him, he went to incredible extents to ensure that it takes place. And that love changes us. Now, Psalm 45 is just an incredible, just an incredible psalm. And uh, this is the part where things get, this is why I was saying Valentine's Day. This is actually kind of like a Valentine's Day psalm. It really is. It's like a, it's a mushy-gushy love song is what it is. I mean, take a look at the beginning. You know, like at the, at the beginning of the, the Psalms where they have the little, not the bolded heading, but the little text right before the Psalm? That's actually part of the Psalm. And it says, uh, to the choir master according to lilies. I don't know if like lilies is a, is a song, but it could just be flowers. So, I don't know. Those of you who are married, did you guys get flowers from your husbands? You ladies, did you get flowers on Valentine's Day? This is actually kind of like a love song to this guy, and they're like, according to Lily, so this song is supposed to be sung by a choir with lots of flowers, and it says, it is a, a love song. It is a love song to be sung. And this is just absolutely incredible. Now, this is the part where I, where I begin to sing. Actually, the whole, the whole teaching thing, and I hope you engage with when, when pastor's speaking, because it's just as much worship as any other part of the service. But this is singing as we go through this. And what I'm hoping is that um, your heart will sing with me because this psalm is so glorious. You may, if you've never read this psalm, or if you've read it, but you've never really contemplated it, if you're relating with Christ, your heart is singing this already. And all that I'm going to do is, is pluck the note, and your heart is going to resonate in chorus 
with what God has actually wrote here, and it's phenomenal. Okay, so it's a love song. This is a Valentine's, a Valentine's song to the king. So remember the title of the message? The new birth and love for the king. The new birth generates this love, and here we go. Ready? This is the fun part. Verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, and my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Do you see what's going on here? It's like, man, I'm telling you that, that the king, I am infatuated, I am desperately in love with the king. He's driving me crazy. I can't, I can't like consciously escape his presence. And not only do I, not only that, but I don't want to. I want to be in his courts. And my heart is just like bursting forth with love for this king. And not only that, but how is it, how is it come forth? He's like, my heart is filling up, and so I'm going to write a song. I'm going to write a song to, to God. I'm going to write a song to the king. I'm going to address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen, and I'm just like scripting a love song to the king. And I have to do it. I have to do it. My heart is exploding. This is what Paul meant when he said that the love of Christ is compelling me to go forward into the world. In other words, it's not like, yeah, I love God, so I really should do this. I, I think we really should participate, and we should come up with some really cool program, like Operation Love or something, and then we should really come up with these ideas, and then we should do this, and we should do that, and we should do that. No, what the psalmist is saying is that, man, my heart is like so exploded with love for God, I have to do this. Like, I'm out of control. I'm out of control. That's how much I love this guy. And, uh, and hopefully, by the way, there's a lot that we can learn. This is one of the things that's so amazing and why I have a hard time with the statistics about the divorce thing. Because if I learn to love Christ like this and God is teaching me and enabling it, he's also going to teach me how to horizontally love my wife. And so it spills over into the success of our marriage, into the success of me being able to love her like Christ loves me because I don't just know about it like it's some sort of theological piece that I need to memorize all these verses, I'm experiencing it and I'm taking that over and I'm, I'm spilling it over in a horizontal direction as well, at the same way. And God is pleased in that, within marriage, for that to actually happen. So my heart is just filled up with, I'm going to address songs to the king. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, they say stuff like, when you get together, you need to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You need to like get together and and make melody with your hearts to God, and just like let it flow, man. Just let the songs flow to God. You're already loving on Him, and get together as a group, and just love on Him together, and encourage one another. This is why it's just so cool to sing songs. Old songs, new songs, I love them all. Love them all. As many instruments as we can, no instruments, a cappella, whatever. Because the reality of it is, it's not the style, and it's not even the mode in which we deliver it. It's all about Christ. It's not even about us. Are you coming here to be entertained? Are you like, well, I don't really like the music. I don't really like the preaching. I don't really like the color of the building. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about us loving on him. And like, just like, I can't, ah! you know what I mean? That's what your soul feels like. And actually, I think that's part of it, what, like the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, not only like for our needs, but also because he's helping me like express this like incredibly eternal, magnificent, bigger than I am love in my heart that's just like exploding. That's what Paul said when he said, look at, I'm going to the cross, man. I can't help. I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't care if you come up and try and tie me up. I'm still going because the love of Christ is forcing me to go into missions. Forcing me to go. And here it is. I delight in doing it. It's not a bad thing because his commands are good for us. And so this is what we need for Operation Love to actually be successful, right? More love for the king spilling out into the people of the community. Verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. I love this part. This is, so, is kind of awkward and sort of weird because... Like, in my relationship with Jesus, I'm the feminine. You know what I mean? In my relationship with Jesus, I'm the feminine. And I'm all right with that. I'm actually all right with that. That doesn't mean male and female. It means that, I, that he is the head and I am the body. And he's the ruler. And like, I am... And there's more to come, actually. But you get the idea. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Only people who have seen the glory of Jesus can actually say, see, say this because in Isaiah it says that he, his appearance wasn't one that you would totally recognize him, but there are some that have seen him transfigured. 
They have seen him in the spirit. They have seen him in his glory. And I'm telling you that when you see him, you will be changed. And you will not be the same from the time that you see him until you walk out. And you're always going to want to be going back. Always. That's what happens. And so you're like, man, have you seen him? He is absolutely phenomenal. He's glorious in all of his ways, not only externally, but internally. He is beautiful. He is absolutely amazing. And grace comes forth from his lips. I hope that you're thinking right now by the Holy Spirit, John chapter 1. Why? Because John chapter 1 says that the law came through Moses, but what came through Jesus? Grace and truth came through Jesus. And they came through his lips, through his life. He's the word of God, through how he lived, through what he said. He was able to forgive sins. I'm telling you, is it easier for me to say to you, take up your pallet and walk, or your sins are forgiven you? For the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. And I'm doing it because of my great love. Grace fills Christ. I don't even think you can divide the grace of God from Jesus. He's the embodiment of the grace of God together. Grace is filled with his lips. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body, the church, so that he might have first place in all things. He is preeminent. He is the one who is to have first place, the center of all things. The world does not revolve around me. It revolves around Christ. He is the center of all things. The King. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Has, has Jesus been blessed? Oh yeah, by the way, I forgot to say this, but the reason why we know that this psalm is about Jesus is that verses 6 and 7 of this, of this psalm are actually quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and the Holy Spirit says, about the Son of God, about Jesus, and then he quotes verses 6 and 7. And so we know that this, is, this psalm is about Christ, just in case you were wondering. It's about Jesus. It's not about Solomon. It's not about David. It's not about any of the kings of Israel. It's, well, that have lived already. It's about the king of Israel who is going to have a kingdom that will never fade away. All right? All right, check this out. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victorious for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Truth and meekness and righteousness. They are embodied in Christ. He even said, come to me. I am meek. Learn of me. I am the truth. Come to me. I am your righteousness. You see, I mean, you can't miss this if you've been awakened to the truth. This is all about Christ. And he's riding out victoriously. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the, king's, in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. This is a little bit scary for me, I'll be honest with you. But the reality of it is there's horses in heaven. True? There's some form of a horse because Jesus is going to be riding it when he comes back. And he's got a robe that's white and it's dipped in blood. And based upon a passage in Isaiah, I think that that blood is the blood of his enemies. And, and we sing about this sometimes, especially when we get patriotic and we sing, uh, it's interesting that it's a patriotic song, but the battle hymn of the Republic, you know, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is what? Trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's amazing that, you know, we got like people singing that every year that know nothing about what it means and they're going to be a recipient of that wrath. And they're going to be like, you remember when you were singing that song like 50 times? You sang that song during your life? And, and that's scary, but he's coming back on this horse, and he's going to, his sword actually isn't on his side. Where is it at? It comes out of his mouth. By his mouth, he can create something out of nothing, and by his mouth, he can slay things. By the word of his mouth, he can do that. And, uh, and he's going to take care of that. Revelation 1 and 19 have this picture of glorious, risen Christ coming back and can power and in splendor. You can look it up. Verses 6 and 7. I love this too. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice that the king is who? God. The king is God. There it just totally abolishes that they're talking about Solomon or David or anyone else. The king is God. Again, another prophetic statement that the, so that the Israelites should know that the king who was to come, the Messiah, is not less than deity, is not less than God. He is Emmanuel, God who is with us. He is Emmanuel. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And he shares that with us, by the way. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is right out of the book of Hebrews, right? 
when it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He was beaten. His beard was ripped off. He was marred greater than any man. He was stripped of his clothes. He was nailed to a tree and suspended between heaven and earth and cursed as anyone who dies on the tree. And Jesus became a curse for us so that we might be delivered. He's been, he died. He was raised. He has ascended and he has received the kingdom and he is now on the path of joy. From the very beginning, there were some difficulties that had to be faced, but he faced them head on and he was victorious. Therefore, God, his God, has raised him from the dead. And, and that's a demonstration that he did this. In Luke 1, it says that God said, I'm going to give him, this, my son, the throne of his father David to rule forever. Isaiah 9, Christmas verses, For unto us a child is given, unto us a son, a son is born, and, and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Jeremiah 23 has got a beautiful picture of a righteous branch, a righteous ruler who is to come, who will rule and reign over God's people forever and ever. Just glorious. And this is who he is. And he's, he's the joyful king. He's a king that's so filled with joy. Joy overflowing. And he shares it with us. That's incredible. Verses 8 and 9. This is when it gets kind of mushy. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh, aloes, and cassia. It's not this cologne. It's, some other type of, it's something else, right? From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Stringed instruments? Stringed instruments? Ivory palaces. Ivory palaces. The temples. The temples. The, the overflow of praise. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of all fear. That's awesome. You know why? That's you and me. That's us. We're standing beside the king and we have gold. Now, who cares about the gold? But we're standing by the king. That's awesome. It's going to get better in just a second. He's leading us in, in his triumph. 2 Corinthians 2 14. There's an aroma that goes forth from the people of God into the world that declares his goodness. Verses 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget about your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Oh, this is amazing. The first thing is what? That when we get so infatuated, actually it goes way beyond infatuation because it lasts a lot longer than infatuation. It's like true love. This is what real love is. What happens is we're so caught up with Christ, we're so caught up in love with Christ, that the things of the world pale in comparison. So it's no big deal to say, you know what, I don't need to do that. In fact, I don't even want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want my marriage to be something that brings glory to God. I want to use my body for the glory of God and not for my own pleasure, but for the pleasure of the king who has redeemed it. I want to use my tongue. I want to use my money, God's money. I want to do this thing because I'm so caught up in love with this king. And so we forget about the things of the world. You know what that verse reminds me of? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and all of the things of this world will grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. And you're no longer looking at like a percentage basis when you're giving money to the work of the kingdom. Because it just gets obscured. And you're just like, Lord, what do you want me to do? That freaked me out one time when I had like, I had $50 in my pocket this one time. And uh, this person came over and was going on a missions trip. And I already knew what I was going to do with that money. And God, I'm telling you, I've never heard his voice, but he told me, you give that person that 50 bucks. And I'm like, no. That's what I told him. I'm like, I already have... I have, I'm going to use that money for something else. I already have, I'm going to get some pleasure out of that money. I'm going to squeeze some pleasure for myself out of that money. And you know how that works when you, when you have an argument with him, with the Almighty? It doesn't go very good. And, and the reality of it was, even when I did give the money, it was like, oh, that was the best $50 I spent this week. You know what I mean? It was just awesome. So, but we fight about it. We usually put up a fight, but then the love of God compels us. And we forget about the things of the earth. And the king will, this is incredible, the king will desire my beauty? The king desires my beauty? Does he know me? Does he know who I am? Are you serious? 
and he is my Lord. Okay, I can get that. I can get that. Philippians chapter 2, I can get that. Every knee will bow. Every t- He's received the name that is above every name. Hey, check out this laundry list of Kerry. Check out this laundry list of Kerry. And uh, I'm going to make my, my, uh, my notes available in a PowerPoint. Just email the office if you want them, okay? Um, this, this list is totally worth it all. Uh, this goes right in line with what you were saying earlier, Ron, because there's something about coming to know us so that when you read a verse that says that God's going to desire my beauty, that it makes more sense and your love will increase. Here's what it says about Carrie. Genesis chapter 6 and 8. The intention of my heart is evil continually from my youth. Proverbs 20, verses 6 and 9. I'm impure. I'm not righteous or good. Ecclesiastes 7.20. My heart is full of evil and madness. Ecclesiastes 9.3. I am full of wickedness. Psalm 58. I am blind, imprisoned, and in darkness. Isaiah 42. I've gone my own way. Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 1. I'm unclean and polluted, Isaiah 64. I'm rebellious, Isaiah 65. I'm stubborn, evil-willed, and refusing to listen, Jeremiah 16:12. My heart is deceived, and I am desperately sick, Jeremiah 17. I'm a diseased tree that's bearing bad fruit, Matthew 7:17. I'm among those who love darkness, John 3. I was a slave to sin, John 8 and Romans 6. I'm unrighteous. I don't understand God. I don't seek God, Romans 3. I'm stiff-necked and I resist God's Holy Spirit at every point that I can, I can before Christ, Acts 7. I had a hard heart and it was impenitent, not willing to, re, not willing to submit to God or acknowledge His, his uh, rulership over me or repent, Romans 2. I am without the fear of God in my eyes, Romans 3. I'm hostile towards God, Romans 8. I'm spiritually foolish, 1 Corinthians 2. I'm spiritually dead and among the children of wrath, Ephesians 2. I've been darkened, I'm alienated, I'm hard-hearted, callous, I'm filled with perversion, filled with greed, filled with impurity of every sort, and I'm living among the enemies of the cross. That's Ephesians 4:18 and Colossians 1, 13 and 21. I'm dead in my trespasses, Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2. I'm defiled and unbelieving, Titus 1. Under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5. I'm foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to passions and pleasures, passing the days with malice and envy, and I'm hated, hating, hated by others and hating one another, Titus 3. 3. I'm having eyes that are full of adultery. I have a, uh, that, uh, I'm insatiable for sin. I've been trained from a young age in greed, and I'm accursed. Two, that's 2 Peter 2.14. That's who I am. That's what the Bible says I am. That's who I am. That's, what, that's who you are. That's what the Bible teaches about us. That's a hard thing to get, to get in our souls. Because we like to compare ourselves not up against the standard of Jesus, but we like to compare ourselves up against the standard of our neighbor. But the reality of it is, this is who we are. This is what the Bible teaches we are. By the way, that list that I just got comes out of, uh, out of the Knaves Topical Bible. And you can get all of the references right there in case you were interested. Now, the beautiful thing is, something changed, didn't it? Because now there's something desirous in me that Jesus, the King, wants. And he's going to call me uh, his bride? That's, that's incredible. The King desires our beauty. Ephesians 5 says that he loved the church like a husband is to love their wives. And he laid down his life for us so that he might clean us up. Ezekiel chapter 16, it gives this picture of this like dirty, filthy, bloody woman who's laying in her own blood on the ground, filled with dirt and filled with nastiness. And the king comes and he picks her up and he cleans her off and he puts her through beauty treatments and he lets her grow. And as she grows, she grows in beauty and beauty and beauty and beauty until such a day as the wedding is to take place. Now that picture in Ezekiel chapter 16, you can read all about it, is God saying to Israel, that's who you were, and then after all that I did for you, you played the whore. That's what he says. After everything that I did, I picked you up off the ground, you went and you did that. And that's, that's not good. Now here's the thing about the church what he desires of us that we could not do, what Israel could not do, we can now. We can. We can love him. He has made it possible through the cross and through his resurrection. He has made 
our ability to love Him and to love others. And He has washed us clean from all of our iniquity. And so that when He sees us, He sees a bride that is dressed in white. It is incredible. Look at the rest of the psalm. We're going to finish up here. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Come on! It's time for the wedding feast. And the bride has made herself ready. Look at how beautiful she is. In in the place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9 says this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. That's us. That's amazing. I'm telling you, like, think about all of the weddings. There was weddings that just took place yesterday. People are going on their honeymoons right now, and they've spent thousands of dollars on them. They were beautiful. The brides, like, spent all their time getting beautified and getting these awesome, like, dresses, and it was glorious. I mean, aren't weddings cool? Weddings are awesome. They're so cool, but I'm telling you that all of them are like a shadow compared to what the bride of Christ is going to look like in that day. All of the beauty and glory of men, all of the brides of all time rolled up together will not hold a candle to the beauty of the bride of Christ at the day of his wedding. It will not. In fact, I would say, I'm I'm just as how I think, but I think that the the beauty of a bride, and they are glorious. I mean, weddings are amazing. I love them. And, and it's just so amazing to see the brides come down, and it's just so cool. The whole thing is just amazing. But I'm telling you, the beauty of the bride, the glory of the bride in that day is like, is the difference between it is like the difference between a sheep being slaughtered and the son of man. That's the difference between the glory of the two. It's going to be phenomenal. And I'm not even doing a good job at describing it. This is something worth living for. This is something that captures our heart and changes us from the inside out, and we begin to love from the inside out. This is the sort of vision that we need to have of Christ so that Operation Love is not a religious movement of ideas that non-believing organizations could pull off better than we can. Because they have money and more people to do it. If we don't have love, it will not go. And I'm not just talking about horizontal care. Non-believers have horizontal care for one another. I'm talking about passionate love for the king, having seen him high and lifted up. You want to know how sexual immorality gets restrained in your heart? The knowledge of Jesus. The reason why people who are Christians, and sometimes I'm just going to focus in on Christian leaders who are falling prey to sexual temptation, The reason why they're falling prey to sexual temptation, the Bible only gives two answers. One, they don't know God. They're not born again. They're serving vocationally and they don't know him. Or two, the only other answer is they don't know him like they should. They're an infant. And they they haven't seen him in the beauty. Because it's the knowledge of Christ. I don't have time to go into verses, but there's plenty of them to share. It's the knowledge of Jesus that actually restrains sin. And I'm telling you, He's worth remaining pure for. And that knowledge he gives to us, and we're like, dude, I am so for the purity card, the purity ring. I'm living for him. I'm living for him. So how's your love life with Jesus today? What have you been singing about this week? Hopefully you did some of that spilled out horizontally into the lives of your your husband and to the the wife uh, that you're um, married to. And um, do you sing for Jesus? Are you eagerly awaiting his return, or is it scary?
what are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your time? For those of you who are young and you're considering school, why are you considering school? Why secondary education? What are you going to do there? What are you going to do after that? I mean, I see, these, I see young people, and they're like, they have no sense of destiny whatsoever. They have no purpose at all, except to live for their own pleasure in the day. And it's like, what's wrong with you? You need to come to know Christ and let him put you on track. Let him put you on the track. Have a vision, have a destiny, have a purpose, have a call. Listen to him. Do the treasure exchange. Get it done. What are you treasuring right now? Are you treasuring Jesus? Are you treasuring the things that Jesus can give you? Are you treasuring something besides him? Um, Because he's the only treasure. He's it. He's the only one. If you aren't, have you been born again? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Have you you cried out to him and, and, and recognized that, yeah, I am that person that I've listed off. I'm all those things and more. And I need you to save me. I need you to wash me. I, I want to be that bride. I want to be clean. I want to I know you. I want to I love. My house is falling apart. My marriage is on the rocks. I, I, need, I need a radical transformation. I'm addicted and I, to things that I can't overcome and I need to be set free. The only answer for you is to have your treasures changed from crack to Jesus, from pornography to Christ. All right? It has to happen. If it doesn't happen, you will not be set free. But the beautiful thing is, and this is what Romans 8 is all about, he has set us free for those who believe. And he sets our hearts to praising him. And, and this is weird, but I'm totally in love with this man. And, and you know, I'm not afraid to say it. I'm saying it on a recording and I'm saying it publicly. He is amazing. And the amazing part about that is the only reason why I could say it is because God has enabled me to. That's how I feel about it. He's allowed me to see him, just like Isaiah. He took me into the temple and I saw Christ high and lifted up. And it's changed me from the inside out. And I hope that your heart is singing with my song of praise. It's a Valentine's. Isn't, isn't Psalm 45 like, I hope now every Valentine's Day that you're reminded of Psalm 45 because that's what it's all about. This is a real Valentine that lasts for eternity. Psalm 45. Let's sing a song of praise to the King. Amen? All right, let's pray and we'll, we'll sing a song closing. Lord, we just give you thanks and we, uh, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives and that our love for you would excel more and more so that it's overflowing to the point where it is the consuming fire that is driving us so that we, like Paul, can say, we have to do this because the love of Christ is compelling me to. Fill us up, Lord. Help us not to fall into these statistics. Give us a vision for you because you are our only hope and we give you thanks. Amen.